Welcome to the Go Well podcast. My name is Kate Mercer and today I'm talking with Professor Wendy Moyle who is the Program Director of Healthcare Practice and Survivorship in the Menzies Health Institute Queensland at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. She is also a Professor of Nursing in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Griffith University and her research expertise is in dementia, depression and delirium. She has focused her research on finding evidence for best practice in the care of older people and in particular those with dementia and improving quality of life and evidence for managing behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia using controlled trials to test psychosocial interventions. She has a keen interest in technologies and within a social robotics laboratory, she develops and evaluates assistive technologies and social robots. She works with a multidisciplinary team of researchers from Australia and internationally, in particular from the UK and Japan. She has a well-established publication and research grant record and has achieved several awards in recognition of her teaching, supervision of higher degree students and research, as well as two International Women's Day Awards, an International Nurse Researcher Hall of Fame for her research 2019, and she is recognised by RoboHub as one of 30 women in robotics globally you need to know in 2019. She also has an international award for social robotics from Analytics Insight 2020. Welcome to Go Well Professor Wendy Moyle. Thanks very much for having me today. Okay, so actually what the first question I'd like to ask you is actually about research. I really liked your answer when we were talking the other day. Why do you think it's so important that we all in the public domain understand and know what research is and why it's important? Particularly in the area of uh, dementia, because that's my area of interest, is I think it's important that we're kept informed so we understand what new treatments are for dementia or other diseases, and that we can work on prevention strategies for that particular disease. And if we don't have research, well, Australia's really gonna be behind the eight ball in terms of being able to diagnose people and being able to treat people. So it's absolutely important that crucial that we actually have medical research ongoing. Because also in the area of dementia, there's so much research being done, isn't there? Absolutely. There's new things coming out every day. This creates confusion as well. So while the websites, um, Neuroscience News and Science Daily are, are good, probably the most credible websites around, and it's just unfortunate that because of the large volume of work that's being um, published, we can't always know it's credible. And this makes it very difficult for the lay public to understand also. They're after news, so they want um, sexy type of news. And so they're publishing work before it's actually really been done. And if you look very closely at some news articles, what you'll find is the research is being talked about, but Mm. the results aren't there. But I think it's great that you do put out this information because it does help the general public. 
Thank you very much for that long explanation. I really appreciate that. And I certainly have noticed that as well when I'm uh, looking for articles and research intermingled in there. There certainly are articles about research that's being done or that's planned to be done. But yeah, mm. who knows what might be the outcome. So thank you for explaining that. So let's move into your area that we're going to talk about today, which is dementia, because I know you do work in other areas mm. too. But today we're focusing on dementia. Before we go into your work, what is the latest of results that us as lay people should know about dementia outside of your, your work that we're going to talk about soon? Uh, have there been any breakthroughs that you know that perhaps we should all know about? I think, I think personally what people need to know is that the numbers of people with dementia is on the rise. We're an ageing population and we are going to continue to see the numbers of people with dementia rise if there's no medical breakthrough. So while we see in the news occasionally or quite frequently some potential breakthroughs, some potential new ideas about dementia, how it's uh, formed, developed, etc., there's been nothing that's suggested why we're getting dementia and how we're going to actually treat it. But what we do know is that there are ways to reduce the chances of getting dementia. And so I think we all know these things, but I'm just going to repeat them. So we know that if we eat a healthy diet, particularly if it's Mediterranean diet, we drink no more than one alcoholic drink per day. We exercise regularly. So by regularly, it's usually daily. We do some exercise. We don't smoke because certainly cigarette smoking will increase our chances of having high blood pressure. So we try not to, um, we try to reduce high blood pressure. We keep a healthy weight. We manage our health problems such as cholesterol and diabetes. And we learn new hobbies. So we stay stimulated, particularly in terms of involving people socially. But alongside that, I guess for myself, what I would like people to understand is if they're concerned about memory problems, is not to be frightened of these. It could be that they are having memory problems because of some other health issue. So the other health issue could be related to depression or could be related to some other disease process. So it's really important that they see a GP and they see that GP very early. If they're not satisfied, then they can be asked to be referred. An early diagnosis is really important if they have a dementia diagnosis and it isn't a death sentence. There are lots of people now who are living very long lives with dementia because they've had an early diagnosis. They've been able to get onto cognitive um, enhancing medications, psychosocial interventions very early, and this will certainly help them and help their trajectory of dementia. But it will also help our understanding of dementia in the early stages. For many years, we didn't understand early stage dementia, and we only saw people in the latter stages. So if we can get people diagnosed early, this will help both the person, the family, and also our research. Mm, very good. Okay. And uh, you talked about the social stigma. What do we need to do about that? Mm -hmm. Dementia is very stigmatised. And it's probably because the person, as they lose their ability to recall and remember, and there's no cure, society doesn't really want to talk about it. Or they don't really want to understand what's wrong with the person. So 
as I said, if people would seek an earlier diagnosis, it's likely they'll have an easier time with the disease. Particularly early in the disease, usually people know that there's something not right. They know that it's not normal to forget things. They know it's not normal to forget names, and they worry about this. And they'll often say to family members, you know, I should be remembering these things. I can't remember. Family members will get concerned. Sometimes they'll go to the GP and the GP doesn't want to uh, or doesn't know how to manage the situation and will tell the person not to be concerned. And I've seen that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I've even seen that happen in my family situation as well, where I knew very well early on my father had Alzheimer's disease, but his GP refused to actually diagnose him, refused to send him for quite some years. And I always feel quite disappointed by that, that he could have actually had treatment much earlier. And as I've said, an earlier diagnosis will give access to those cognitive enhancing medications. One of my colleagues here at the Menzies Health Institute, Queensland, Dr. Cassia Lyon, her work is on stigmatisation and dementia. And so she works a lot in terms of what psychosocial interventions can help society or help the person with dementia or carers in terms of helping reduce that stigmatization of dementia. Many years ago, we used to find cancer was stigmatized because we didn't have a cure. Now many of the cancers are cured. People aren't so frightened and frightened to talk about it. Mm. I'm hoping we'll have the same thing happen with dementia. Mm, okay. Um, so let's talk about people who've got dementia who have been diagnosed now. Uh, what are the what are the different stages of of dementia, and what are the needs of people with dementia? I think it's very difficult to talk about needs without looking at the individual. So in terms of needs, we talk about person centered care, and we look and ask the person and also their family, what their needs are. So what we try to avoid is is basically saying that the person with dementia has these needs and box them into a box. Everyone is an individual and every dementia person has individual needs. There are several different types of dementia and they display different symptoms. And so those needs tend to be um, related to the symptomology that they actually display. So what we do when we first meet people with dementia is we ask about their previous lifestyle. We ask about their uh, their work environment, what their hobbies were, what their socialisation situation was, so that we can build a biopsychosocial um, history of that person and then we tailor any interventions that we're doing to that biosocial intervention so some people might be lonely others might not some people might have needs that are physical whereas other people may have emotional needs Mm, very good okay well look the most exciting part is your particular area which is working with AI or artificial intelligence and robotics, which is just so fascinating. What can you tell us about your work there? Well, it is fascinating. I get very enthusiastic about this area. So at um, Menzies Health Institute, Queensland, Griffith University, we've been working for a number of years on artificial intelligence and robotics. And people thought we were very crazy when we first started (laughs) working in this area. And I think I got accused of all sorts of things like taking away staff and 
and putting robots in their place. And that's certainly not what we've been working towards. There are many times in a person's day, so a person with dementia's day, whether they're living at home or whether they're living in a residential care setting, where they will have limited numbers of people around them to talk with them. So we use robots as a way of helping people to communicate as a companion when they don't have someone to uh, communicate and to seek comfort from. So we've conducted uh, a number of pilot and large clinical trials, and these robots are what we call social robots. And these are usually social companions for people with dementia. Some of them are what's called humanoid robots. And these are robots that really look like humans and act like humans. They might talk and have, have features and behaviours that are very lifelike. And they seek to engage people with dementia. We have what are called telepresence robots. And these robots connect to people um, who are outside of the facility that the person is, is in. So, for example, <clears throat> if a person is living in a nursing home in Brisbane, their family member might live in uh, New York, they will connect with their family member through the robot. It's a bit like uh, an iPad, but the person with dementia doesn't need to know anything about the technology. So they don't need to know how to turn on. They don't need to have, know how to make it move. Um, the person's family member in New York can do that as long as the robot's with them. We also have um, entertainment robots, so robots that will read the newspaper to the person, show photographs and play, play games. So we do a lot of, lot of different activities depending on what we're trying to achieve with people with dementia. But the main aim is to really improve quality of life, improve communication, improve engagement with people with dementia. So I'm imagining um, the Daleks from Doctor Who, you know, uh, <laughs> used to sort of follow people around. Is that what we're, yep. is that what we're talking about here? Uh, not, not quite. Not quite as scary. I remember I used to, I used to hide behind the sofa when so I was a young child. <laughs> no, they're, they're not, not, not as scary as that. And, and I must say that the, the telepresence robots, which are human height, and they have a screen on them that the person with dementia can see their family member through, and talk with their family member through, and the family member can make them move. Um, when we've asked people with dementia about any of our robots, um, whether they find them scary, whether they're frightened of them, do you know we've never had anyone say they're frightening. Most people will say, will ask, what, what are they? Because they've never seen anything like this before. What do they do? And then when they start um, interacting with them, they get so fascinated by them that they're, they're not... They don't see them as scary things at all. And yet a lot of people would say, gosh, you know, an 80-year-old, what they know about technology? But these robots are so sophisticated, they don't need to know about the technology. Oh. The technology works for them without them actually having to do very much at all. And so do, do they have a gender? Uh, is there a choice? Is, or, and, and what are their voices like? Are they sort of quite human-friendly or are they still quite <laughs> robotic voices? <laughs> okay, no, no, no robotic voices at all 
Um, so the humanoid robots use our voices, so the researchers' voice, so not robotic at all. The uh, pet robots use the um, voice of the actual animal robot, so not a human voice, so the person doesn't get frightened that this is a, an animal, yet it's got a human voice, and it uses animal animal type voice. The telepresence robot, it doesn't have its own voice. It has the voice of the family member. So there's not really anything oh, frightening at I see, all. I see. So the family member is actually talking through the robot. Absolutely. I see. Ah, Absolutely. I see now. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, and then uh, moving on to the pet robots. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you mentioned the other day, and of course we forget this is that when as dementia goes on over time, people have struggled obviously with finding words, but then often you said, "We'll stop talking in the end." So yeah. that's where the pets come in. Is that right? Um, what we use humanoid robots for this. So these are these are these humanoid robot we've got is is a small childlike robot. So it's it it looks like a human, but it's very small. And what we find is that um, people with dementia have, in the very early stages, have difficulty with word finding. They may, because of that word finding difficulty, stop communicating with those around them because they're embarrassed they're concerned about not being able to get the words out what we find is used through the use of the robot the person becomes less concerned about their language because it's like talking to a young child a young child gives you confidence a young child makes you feel quite comfortable with them and feeling in control and that's like it is with the robot as well we find that uh, people don't uh, forget about their word finding difficulties and actually just talk about what's happening through the robot we try and talk in in a narrative way with the person to get to hear their story and to get them to relate what they've been doing throughout the day or throughout the week so they can tell their story and we can hear their voice. Yes, I was thinking as you're talking, it's almost like we shouldn't be calling them robots because you sort of do tend to think of the Tin Man when you're thinking of robots, don't you? Uh, a, a bit well you sort of do uh, but of course they probably wouldn't be like that at all I mean so touch are they are they still are they what, what fabric are they made of these robots uh, they're, so they're all different so so some are soft and and fluffy and some are, are more of a thick um, wow. plastic and some are more of a hard um, furniture style um, so one of my PhD students, what he's an industrial designer, and what he's been doing is looking at um, the design of robots and what people with dementia and their families want from a robot, what they want it to look like, how they want it to feel, and what they want it to do. And what we've found um, in some previous research that we've done is, you know, we've become very reliant on smartphones and smartphones do an awful lot in a small, small, big, small block. And and people, um, family members often want a, a robot to do multiple tasks. And so this is something we're having to deal with at the moment. If you're putting multiple tasks or multiple things into a robot, it becomes bigger and bigger. Is that what people want of a robot? Do they want it to be a large size, a small size? Do they want it to be fluffy so they can cuddle it? Do they want to... 
it to be having some uh, stimulation. Um, it's going to stimulate them. Do they want it to play music? So that's what he's interested in. I think it's interesting work that um, uh, we're doing this now when there's already been a lot of robots developed. And some of those robots, as you say, probably don't look as good as they probably should look. Mm, so a lot of work still to be done, and it must uh, it must cost a lot though. They must be very expensive at this point in this development stage, are they? Um, yes. So yes, that they are expensive, and um, what we've found over time is that um, people there's a, there's a sort of a cutoff point. So many big robots, and there are some made in Germany that you know are hundred thousand dollars, for example. Um, and they do multiple tasks, but um, mm. people don't want to buy those or they can't afford those. It's more than a new car. So what we've found is, is most families are prepared to pay something around $1,500. So what we try to do is to think about what we can do for $1,500. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing now that a lot of the technologies, a lot of the components are a lot cheaper. And so we are finding that we can do a lot more things with a lot less money than you could even five, two to five years ago. Mm, that's, well, that's amazing. So this is, a, this is really going to happen, isn't it? So just the last thing then, we haven't really talked about how the pet robotics provide comfort, I guess, to people with dementia. Yes. yes. So, so, so the robots we use are soft and cuddly and um they provide an emotional response feedback. So, for example, if um, if the person has normally had a cat or a dog and they have dementia, they can't usually um, continue with that cat or dog because you've got to have the memory to be able to, or the capacity in memory to be able to feed that, remember to feed it, to remember to walk it and toilet and hygiene it. As dementia progresses, um, that becomes more difficult. So a robot is is very convenient in that they don't need feeding, they don't need toileting or hygiene. So these these are you know, great opportunities. They don't place people at risk. They don't bite them. They don't scratch them. They don't run away. They don't bang at the door or overturn furniture or um, cause a person to fall over. But what they do do is they provide an opportunity for a person a bit like a, I guess, a comfort doll in that when you're holding it, you feel comfort from the softness of the of the fabric. But also by looking at it, it looks back at you and it uh, talks in its language back to you. And what we find is people talk to the robot as though it was a dog or a cat or whatever they would normally talk to. The robot interacts with them and they engage with it and that gives them great comfort. It reduces their anxiety. It improves their mood. So what is the pet robot language? <laughs> Does it go? Oh, it depends, it depends on which, it depends on which <laughs> robot it is. <laughs> it depends. So if it was a cat, it would meow. If a dog, it barks. Okay. Um, so the robot we, we've mainly used in our big trials has been actually a harp seal. Now, a harp seal is a very strange thing to have in Australia because most people will look at it and go, what is it? You know, well, I've never seen it before. Um, but it's a very nice shape and size, and it talks in 
harp seal language, so it's it has a squeal. It actually has a harp seal um, voice. It doesn't have any other voice. And um, so when a person looks at it, pats it, touches it, it has this response with its voice. It has its response with its paws that it um, shakes them, looks at them with its it has beautiful eyes. It really looks very adoringly at people and they feel comfort from that. It nudges into them. So they feel, you know, just like a little dog would do. It nudges into them. They they feel like um, the dog is actually responding to them. A lot of people don't realise that it's a harp seal and they will ask what it is and we will tell them what it is. I had one person try to put it in the bath because it was a, <laughs> once they realised it was a harp seal, but most people are quite happy to just um, engage with the interact. We've used these, these harp seals with people for short term and also for longer term. We've used them um, in nursing home care, but we're hoping that we can also trial them in community settings as well because we think that um, people in community would also benefit from these. Sounds so fascinating. Uh, we probably have to sort of wrap things up, but I did just want to ask, uh, I'm not quite sure if part of what your work is is to actually do the programming, but does that sort of mean that whoever is doing the programming or who's been t- who's, whoever's working the, the algorithms, that you're sort of getting um, the pet robot to, you know, like say if it was a, say if it was a dog, to do one bark when when it gets padded or two barks when when it's hungry or I don't know does it it... so I'm not I'm not a programmer but um, Mm. people do that and Mm. basically um, the decisions made about what Mm. what the robot should do and Mm. how it should Mm. interact Mm. and those decisions are made Mm. and then the um the program Mm. is um Mm. written based on that so um you know so one of my other phd students is a programmer and he's working with a small very small robot at the moment and basically writing programs that uh, we hope will be uh, of use to um, people with dementia uh, to be entertained by this small robot. Well, it's just so fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, sharing so You're much of, of that work that you're doing. It's absolutely fabulous to get some really out there stuff, you know, out through the program as well. And also fantastic that there's uh, something like this happening for such an insidious disease in a way so I think there'll be a lot of people hopefully who uh, got some interest and value from listening to you today Professor Wendy Moyle. Thank you very much for the time we really appreciate it.